1: there's no really good or evil. What there is, is prey and predator. Mm -hmm. That illnesses are invisible entities that can come and kill us. We as hunters can go and kill animals. Some animals can come and kill us. As long as we're alive as human people like this in this world, our job is to stay alive. And to stay alive, we have to kill plants and animals, but we have to do it with respect because we know that they're members of our family. So this means taking them into consideration. It doesn't mean not killing them. The whole Amazonian eco-cosmology, and of course there are differences between the different cultures, but basically I think this is corresponds, and this is how anthropologists have discussed it. The Cosmic Food Web by Kaj Arnhem, for example, discusses this. It's an article that you can find online, I'm sure. So it's not really a question of good or evil. It's a question of pragmatically trying to stay alive. You actually do not want to become prey. It's not that we want to celebrate being predators. It's that being predators without getting eaten is
0: the only way of staying alive as far as we're concerned the seven chakras swirling vortices of energy positioned throughout our body from the base of the spine to the crown of the head for thousands of years this ancient wisdom has been passed on from master to disciple what are the functions of these energy centers and could these chakras Help you unlock your destiny and find your true purpose. Welcome to My Seven Chocolates. And now your host, Aditya Jai Kumar. Kumar.
2: What's up Action Tribe, AJ here, host and founder of My7Chakras, my Seven Chakras, the show where we help you calm your mind, relax your nervous system, and experience deep states of bliss. In today's episode, we talk about some mind-blowing topics such as plant medicine, sacred tobacco, mother ayahuasca, spiritual cleansing, sorcerers, and the power of unseen realms of existence. You're going to absolutely love this episode. So if you like the work that we do, and you like to support our efforts so make sure that you hit the subscribe button right now because it does something to the algorithm and it helps more people see this podcast. And before we begin, let's listen to our latest iTunes review by Brenda on iTunes who writes great podcast, listened to the most recent podcast, Tantric Dating, and I loved it. AJ is a great host and asks great questions. So if you would like for me to read out your review as well, then make sure you take two minutes and write us an iTunes review. Just two minutes because this one review will help us get in front of new audiences and help spread the word. Once again, the link is my 7 forward slash review. That's all you need. And with that being said, let's bring on our special guest for today, Jeremy Narby. Jeremy Narby is the co-author of Plant Teachers with Indigenous Elder Rafael Chanchari Pizuri. He became an early pioneer of ayahuasca research while living with the Ashaninka people of the Peruvian Amazon in the 1980s. He studied anthropology at Stanford University and now lives in Switzerland and works as Amazonian Projects Director for Novel Planet, a non-profit organization that promotes the economic and cultural empowerment of indigenous people. So thanks a lot, Jeremy, for coming on our show. Sure, it's a pleasure, AJ. I'd like to start by asking you, how did you end up living with the Ashaninka people in the Peruvian Amazon? To take us back in time, where were you and what really made you make the decision to go into the Amazon?
1: Well, 37 years ago, I was 24 and looking for a place to do um, my doctoral research in anthropology at Stanford, You know, you have to go and do field work. Just like if you're a doctor, you've got to go and uh, work in a hospital f- as an intern. And there's a anthropology, there's a before your field work and a after your... It's by doing field work that you become a, an anthropologist. So basically, you've got to go and live somewhere besides your own home and, mm-hmm. uh, and live with people in another culture for a year or two, and then study something about their situation, and then come back. So it really was like uh, staring at a map, and you know you have darts, a map of the world, and you say, where am I going to go and do my field work? It was for purely theoretical reasons. I was interested in third world development, in the difference between rich and poor, I actually wanted to see a more just world, but that was, so that's why I was interested in that subject. An anthropology professor at Stanford, Renato Rosaldo, told me, if you're interested in that, you should study the situation of indigenous people, because these are people who live in out-of-the-way places, usually on top of vast natural resources that they don't use in ways that development experts consider rational. So they a contradiction to the whole logic of the system. They're the the Achilles heel of third world development. So if you want to understand third world development, go to a place where there is an occurrence of a big development project happening on lands of indigenous people. So it could have been the Arctic. It could have been the Australian desert. It could also have been the Amazon. And in fact, the Peruvian Amazon was the place where in the early 1980s, if you wanted million-dollar development projects by the World Bank, I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars penetrating the Amazon, cutting down the trees, taking lands away from people who've been living there for centuries or more, and giving them to individuals with a market mentality so that they can cut the trees down and establish cattle pastures this is what experts told us in the 1980s was the way to develop the Amazon. This model of development was not only based on deforestation, it was based on territorial confiscation. Meanwhile, the indigenous people living there had the reputation of knowing the forest intimately, and also of using it in ways that were productive, but without destroying it. So they had legitimate human rights claims to just owning their territories and having their land rights respected. But they also had a different view of of what developing the rainforest might actually consist in. So there really was a conflict of visions, of worldviews, of practices. And The, instead of shooting the dart at the map and going to wherever, really the the heart of the, it couldn't have been more at the center of that question. Going to the Ashaninka territory in 1984, it was literally the case that the World Bank was financing a penetration road with what they call these mud roads driven into green virgin so-called forest. Actually, it was only virgin to the experts who flew above it in airplanes and looked down on it. It was been entirely inhabited by indigenous people for a long time. So that's why I ended up going to the Peruvian Amazon to study what ashani people knew about the rainforest, how they used it, how they conceived of it, what was their vision of the forest and how to use it, and in what was it different from the vision of the economists and development experts and agronomists and bank- bankers and, you know, all of these uh, people and the Peruvian government. So as a political anthropologist, it was for entirely theoretical reasons that I chose to go there. And in fact, it was somewhat despite my personal preferences. I was born in Canada. I'm a kind of a northern guy when it gets too hot you know it's difficult i'm not a big fan of insects or snakes or i was not attracted to the tropical rainforest but at the same time it was like if you want to become an anthropologist you you go to somewhere tough you go to where you don't want to go and you study something difficult and interesting and then you become a doctor in anthropology you know so that's uh, kind of despite my personal tastes and strolled into the Peruvian Amazon at the end of 1984. And then from there, Ashanaka people were, I thought they were incredible. I mean, maybe they were barefoot Indians, but they had names in their language for just about every species of plant. And this Mm -hmm. rainforest was a, it was so incredibly rich in species. I soon realized they had more names for plants in their environment, in their language, Then there were Latin names for the same plants given by science. The Ashaninka knew a lot more about the plants in their environment than any Western expert, you know, barefoot university professors. But then where it would get complicated was that when asked about the origin of their plant knowledge, uh, they'd say, oh, well, we have ayahuasqueros, tabaqueros, piari in Ashaninka means the one who takes tobacco. And this is like the equivalent of doctor. It's the one who knows more. You have a problem, you have an illness, you go and see the tobacco specialist. Mm-hmm. And the tobacco specialist, often a man, will smoke tobacco, chew tobacco, paste, and pose his diagnostic, think about things. that Tobacco is really central to how they know the world. And this is like another, when you're at a a university and you think, okay, so what is knowledge? Well, knowledge about plants, it's called botany, okay? But these people are, they're talking about plants as if they were living beings, have personalities that teach them things. Tobacco is considered to be a great teacher. It's also a medicine. And then to apply this medicine, they sing. So they're combining botany, music, therapy, all in one package. Well, there was already difficulties. It gets interesting. This is one thing that I learned at university before going down there by reading Thomas Kuhn's book on the structure of scientific revolutions, is that where you want to go is not only to the Achilles heel where there's that contradiction, but you want to go to the limit of the paradigm. If you get to a point where your own concepts are not sort of dealing with the data, instead of turning around and saying, oh, well, it's not look at that because it's a no. You stay there and you scratch at it and you look at why, just what is this? So this was a perfect case of this. Here were people living in the most biodiverse place on earth with widely recognized knowledge about plants, claiming that a part of their knowledge about plants came from psychoactive plants like ayahuasca and tobacco. For Western knowledge, this couldn't be true because to consider that there's verifiable information in your hallucinations is the definition of psychosis. These people had great knowledge about plants and said right at the heart of their knowledge was this irrational hallucinatory sphere. And that very idea contradicted basic principles of scientific knowledge. Interesting, not easy, So then what do you do? Well, actually, most people, I mean, other anthropologists, observers, at this point in time, back then, had just turned away from the question. You know, if it contradicts basic principles of scientific knowledge, forget it. So when the Indians say that they learn in their hallucinations, I mean, you know, this is how Indians talk. And then, well, we can interpret this or whatever. You know, in other Mm -hmm. words, not really take it seriously, which is kind of weird, too. But I mean, I'm sorry just to be going on and on, but it's actually, it's kind of one of these subjects. You start pulling the thread, and then it all comes out. Because one of the problems with anthropology compared to other disciplines was that in the 20th century, it went through this kind of identity crisis where Mm -hmm. it spent the first half of the century trying to prove that it was a science, that it was actually possible to study human beings scientifically and become a bona fide science. And then realizing in the 1960s that it was impossible for humans to study humans objectively. And But all during that time, anthropologists were like the missionaries of rationalism. They were, in other words, if there was a subject that contradicted the basic principles of Western knowledge, they were not going to be the ones who were going to mess with that, because they were trying to prove that they themselves were Western knowledge, you know, that they really were scientific. So they weren't going to start taking the subjective hallucinations of shamans seriously taking them at their word to a certain extent. So anthropology had a, historically had a problem with shamanism in, in general. Also because of that, it's only started healing, one could say,
2: the relationship between
1: anthropology and shamans, maybe in the last generation.
2: Very, very interesting. And thanks a lot for sharing all of that. I think... <clears throat> really builds a picture for our listeners in terms of understanding the context and the narrative and the story behind your going to uh, the Peruvian Amazon. And the first, what's the difference between the mainstream usage of tobacco, especially around the world, and how it is used in a ceremonial setting? Is there a difference in dosage, type of tobacco, how it's administered?
1: Yeah, thanks uh, for the question. Most uh, people don't uh, know that tobacco, as the the tobacco that is smoked and put into cigarettes, originally came from the Amazon. So it's a bona fide Amazonian plant. That's where it was first domesticated. People there have been using it for thousands of years. These really are tobacco cultures. The Ashaninka, in particular are big tobacco people, and recognized in the in the Amazonian anthropological literature. And so there, before looking at what Western industries and Western people did to tobacco, I think it helps to understand, like rewinding the tape and saying, okay, so what is this plant? In the Amazon, there's Nicotiana tabacum, Nicotiana rustica, there's several kinds of tobacco. The tobacco that they grow has up to 20% nicotine compared to 1% in the tobacco that uh, Virginia Kind of tobaccos. So this is very powerful, filled with uh, psychoactive alkaloids, and people consume hallucinatory doses of this tobacco. I mean, in their culture, it's a hallucinogen. Uh, you know, that's another thing that people don't know. I mean, it's a hallucinogenic plant. It's very powerful, and people know this, and they use it as such. It's considered to be a powerful and somewhat dangerous teacher. So people have the utmost respect for this plant. That's I'm, I'm giving a sort of a telegraphic version of it. And, you know, it's not that it's sacred. I don't think the word sacred really uh, is very useful when talking about Amazonian points of view. I mean, that could be a whole... Uh, Argument or, or a podcast, but you yeah. know, basically, basically the word "sacred" it's a Western concept and it means set apart from. You know, so there's profane, which is ordinary, and then there's the stuff that's set apart, and we're calling it sacred. But in the ashanical point of view, that plants, animals are not set apart from humans. It's all one big mixed-up thing. And but there are these plants that are more powerful than others. They're special. They're not to be taken lightly. They can kick you in the pants but sacred is probably not the right word you know it's like have sort of boxer you know so when you go by you say hello how are you doing and that's how they would see the, the tobacco plant. okay so then we know that tobacco spread out of the amazon and got to central america long before europeans came over in 1500 and all across north america too there are different kinds of tobacco and I'm not going to do the whole history of indigenous American tobacco right here. But then Mm -hmm. after 1500, when Europeans came over, they got a hold of tobacco. Virginia tobacco is called. So this is okay. Well, white European men who started smoking tobacco in the Americas, they thought it was too strong. They didn't come from a hallucinogen using culture. So they liked it mild. They selected Blonde, not dark, uh, low nicotine. And they turned it into more of a pleasure experience. And this is what got exported. Once it got turned into this, so what is it? Nicotine fires the neurons. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, it does other things too, but psychoactive, it's a, a brain spark. I don't actually smoke tobacco, so I'm not here as a defender of tobacco. But actually, if you look at it, the success of tobacco, once Europeans brought it back to Europe, it then spread across Eurasia all the way to the end of Siberia by trade routes. This was just like as when human beings, they could be Siberian, they could be Spanish. Uh, Any When human beings got a hold of tobacco, whoa, they smoked it uh, mm-hmm. because it stimulates the neurons. And so at high dose level, it's a shamanic power tool. At lower dose level, it's a, a spark and a almost an entertainment or a source of pleasure. That's how what, how Europeans worked on it. And then came the 20th century and industrialization. And then unfortunately, it got ugly. And it got ugly for a whole bunch of reasons. But essentially, they laced the tobacco with all kinds of chemicals, hundreds of chemicals, that when you burn them, they turn into even worse carcinogenic uh, substances. So This is tobacco that has been adulterated, weakened, bastardized, polluted. I mean, you can use those words. And then the nicotine is calibrated down to be just enough to fire without ever putting the gear in so that you actually get a delivery so that 20 minutes later, you want to smoke another one. These are nicotine delivery devices as the industry discussed them in internal communications and calibrated just to make you want to smoke the next cigarette as quickly as possible. So this is taking a plant teacher and reducing it down to something that no longer teaches anything, you never actually do get the gear that gets put in there. It never actually takes you anywhere, but it just tickles your neurons just enough to want to get you. And so they've turned a very powerful and dangerous plant teacher into this hooking drug to sell cigarettes to people, not for their own good. And then cigarettes have become the foremost cause of avoidable death. What is it? Is it more than two million people a year who die from cigarette smoke? You know, so the difference between the two, between, so what's the difference between Amazonian tobacco and the tobacco as we know it? You know, it's a difference between medicine and garbage. Uh, it's a pretty big difference.
2: So, thank you for sharing that. And it's very interesting you you know talk about the difference. And in talking about how tobacco spread in your book, you also say that you know whenever it's spreading, especially in Europe, Eurasia, and even Mongolia, the mainstream populace you know liked the tobacco and used it for. Recreational purposes and you know, just to get high and get hooked onto cigarettes. But the shamans in all these places, whether it was the Siberian shamans or the Mongolian shamans, they were able to sense deep into the actual usage of tobacco, right? And they, so they kept it aside for a more medicinal nature or purpose, right?
1: Thank you for pointing that out.
2: That is uh, certainly true. And actually, there's two more
1: little uh, tidbits that one can add to that. It is that Tobacco also encouraged the smoking of cannabis. In other words, in many places, cannabis had tended to be eaten, cooked and eaten. And the idea of smoking it, it would seem like in places like India, was encouraged by the arrival of tobacco smoking. And the second tidbit is linked to that, which is tobacco is the ultimate combo plant. This means that wherever it goes, it tends to be consumed with other psychoactive plants. And this is true with ayahuasca. It's true with cannabis. It's true with many psychoactive plants. People like to modulate the experience of the other plant with tobacco. And this is also how Amazonian shamans work with the tobacco plant. So there you have it.
0: And also, you've
2: written that singing and chanting and whistling, the Icaros plays a very important role when it comes uh-huh. to working with plant medicine, right? You've written that the natives will often sing to the tobacco and sing their ancestral songs. Tell us a bit more about this.
1: Yeah, that's a whole business. I think that the way to get to the heart of uh, music in Amazonian shamanic practice is to understand that when a shaman, for example, has taken ayahuasca and is perceiving entities or beings, that if one pays attention really to those entities, it may be at first visual, for example. In fact, they have sound emit melodies, they have a vibration. And so for example, if you're in the presence of the mother of tobacco, what you wanna do is pay attention to the melody or the the vibration. And this is how they say they learn the icaros or the songs or the melody that each species has a mother or an owner and that this entity has a melody. And that once you learn that melody, then you can call that entity What this is saying is that there is an essence in each living species. And the essence of the essence is a melody. The vibration is the essence of the essence of life, in other words. That's what they think. That's what Mm -hmm. they practice. And let's say you're a hallucinating shaman to be telegraphic. And you're seeing these entities in your visions. What you can do to interact with them is to sing to them. The, the only thing that we have in common with these entities is that we can emit melodies and they emit melodies. We can learn their melody and we can sing it back to them. We can't emit visual hallucinations. We can't respond to our hallucinations with hallucinations, but we can respond with melodies. And so music becomes the medium for exchange with the invisible world, which itself is made of music. It's made of knowledge and it's made of music. What the the heart of that connection, an individual ayahuasquero will boast about the extent of his knowledge, just like university professor will boast about the number of books that he's written. You know, the more Icarus you have, the greater a shaman you are, because it means, you know, you know the melody of this entity and of that entity you have a whole uh, panoply of of allies and entities that
2: you can uh, convoke. Very fascinating. And what I love about your book and your approach is that you have sort of blended Contemporary science with understanding the lineages and the knowledge and the wisdom of the shamans. And in talking about the science of tobacco, I found it very interesting to learn that nicotine in its concentrated form is very toxic to humans. And it's in fact, it's more dangerous than cyanide, if I'm not mistaken, it's used in insecticides. And yet it does seem to have certain benefits in the right context. So could you talk to us a bit about this?
1: Well, you know, that's an older notion that the difference between medicine and poison is dose. Paracelsus said that. So things that can kill us in very small quantities it means is that they have a deep impact on our physiology. And so if one makes those quantities a lot lighter, it makes sense to a certain extent that they might actually be useful too. And that's exactly the case with nicotine. I mean, the first thing, the interesting thing about nicotine is that it was the first substance that science studied in the early 1800s They wanted to know what was the active ingredient in tobacco. I mean, it was like, you know, an important question. And so they found nicotine. And then lo and behold, they found that it seemed to attach to receptors on the surface of neurons. They didn't even know that there were receptors. It was following Mm -hmm. the nicotine molecule in the human body that they started noticing that it would dock onto neurons. And so they discovered the whole idea that cells have receptors by following nicotine. So the first Mm -hmm. receptors that were discovered were the nicotinic receptors. It turns out that actually these are the most basic receptors in the human body, because actually the body isn't wired to receive tobacco. It's wired to use acetylcholine, which is a brain hormone that it uses to communicate from one cell to another. And Mm -hmm. nicotine is like a skeleton key copy of the molecule of acetylcholine and fits into the receptor that's specific to this molecule. So what the plant is doing now, this receptor is so basic that it's in algae, it's in bacteria, it's in all living beings and animals in the human fetus when it starts unfolding it's the first receptor that sets up the place for the other receptors it's like the most basic deepest and it's also very multifunction you find nicotinic receptors throughout the body doing many different things so that if you're a poisonous plant or you are a venomous snake, all you got to do is brew up a few uh, skeleton keys that mess with the nicotinic receptors, et voila, and that's exactly what some snake venoms do. They fit into nicotinic receptors. Nicotine fits into nicotinic receptors. It's essentially built to kill insects that eat tobacco leaves. You know, so there it is. If you put too much nicotine in the human body or in an insect, it will kill it. Apparently, a drop of pure nicotine. If you could extract the nicotine that's in, I think it's a couple of cigarettes, you just boil those cigarettes and then reduce it down to the the drop those two cigarettes contain, and you inject that into your blood, I think that you die from a heart attack. I think that's how it works. The thing is that when you smoke a cigarette, the huge part of that nicotine is destroyed in the combustion. That's the only good news about combustion, you know, smoking tobacco. The only good news is that it really allows people to modulate the nicotine, and you only get a very small part of the nicotine that's actually there. And because if you got a larger part, it would really be dangerous. Shamans who take large doses of nicotine, actually your receptors get used to huge quantities. But if you're a naive user and you've never had uh, tobacco or nicotine before, and suddenly you get a, a large dose of powerful tobacco or nicotine, it can be dangerous. And actually there have been several cases that were called ayahuasca overdoses. But the problem was that the ayahuasca had tobacco in it, and that, the, um. and that the overdose was the nicotine on naive users. But anyway, it can get complicated. So how does a poison, how can a poison also be a medicine? Well, like that, because it has so many different impacts on the human body that you can use it. So it can be good or it can be bad. For example, it seems that nicotine encourages the creation of new blood vessels. So if you have a tumor, for example, it's a bad idea to consume nicotine because this is just going to make your tumors grow more. But if you have diabetes and you're losing your capillary, your blood vessels in your fingertips and in your toes, actually Mm -hmm. some nicotine cream can encourage the creation of new blood vessels. So depending on this capacity of nicotine to induce the creation of new blood vessels can be negative or positive depending on your situation and how you use it, but it can be used medicinally. I'd compare it to dynamite, you know, that it's a spark for the brain in very little quantities. It's basically unsafe, but if you know how to use it, you know how to control it, you know how to dose it, you know, they actually here in Switzerland, they use dynamite to prevent avalanches, you know, the guys go up there and they throw little pieces and and it sets off the, uh, you know, so that you actually can use dynamite in a way that is useful, but you really have to know what you're doing.
2: And so now, hoping to transition from uh, tobacco to a little bit of ayahuasca, in your book, you write that one of the ayahuasqueros or had this realization, ayahuasca only helps you see the work that needs to be done. The yachak told him, tobacco gives you the power to actually do it. Tobacco is the muscle of the work. A curandero or healer has to do the battle in the spirit world. So he has to build up his inner soldiers. That requires drinking tobacco, nicotiana rustica, which is very high in nicotine. Speak to this a bit, like what's this spirit battle that they're engaging in? And what role does tobacco play over here in the context of ayahuasca?
1: Well, that's also, I think, good questions. And they are also the kinds of questions that need uh, packing, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, You know, I I was maybe a customs officer in another life or something. I kind of like uh, unpacking uh, concepts. The stuff that needs rewinding here is that Amazonian people have different way of making oppositions. Everybody in the world is dualist everyone is on the one hand on the other hand it's a very human thing but in western dualism there are absolute categories so good and evil body mind nature culture are absolutely opposed to each other conceptually so that nature is everything that culture is not and vice versa good and evil the same thing and it just goes on and on you know body and mind spirit and matter etc and so that each time you look up the definition of spirit it is immaterial Uh, you look up the definition of uh, nature it is everything that is not culture and vice versa amazonian people do not have watertight concepts they do make differences between for example visible and invisible but so for example the entities that westerners call spirits which is a Western concept and is defined by an opposition to matter. Ashaninka people say maninkari. Maninkari means those who are hidden. It means that they are beings or entities and that you usually don't see them. So they're invisible. But sometimes you see them because you can drink ayahuasca and tobacco and then they become visible. So they're not saying these entities are immaterial spirits. In fact, these are entities that most of the time are inside living organisms animating them. And when they leave the living organism, it becomes a cadaver and is dead. So these hidden entities are part and parcel of living organisms most of the time. Not that immaterial, but most of the time invisible. In the same way, these entities are also, can be used for healing, can be used for harming. No clear cut. We would like, I mean, you know, the Western audience, like me, for example, you know, we've got our popcorn, we're in the front row, we want, you know, good guys and bad guys. But no, there's not a single good guy or bad guy in in their view. It's can be good, can be bad, A little bit of this, there's always a little bit of good in the bad and bad in the good. And so, you know, these entities They're dangerous, but we need them. They can help heal us, but they can also harm us. And shamans are the specialists of, they go between worlds. They leave the human community. They go and negotiate with this invisible world of beings and forces that somehow is right nearby and somehow also determines the world that uh, we see usually. And then they get power. The shamans who go and spend time in that realm come back with power and knowledge. And power and knowledge is ambiguous down to the bank and back as well from their point of view. And so you got to keep an eye on these shamans. They're shadowy figures. They can. You want them because they can heal you and, or inform you, but you also want to keep them at a distance because they can harm you. But it's not the whole view of the entire cosmos—the kind of uh, from the biosphere up until the, the all the beings that are in this world and beyond this world in their view we're part of this whole ensemble that is functioning circuit and so that things depending on how we treat animals in the forest then we might get punished with illnesses from the level above us Mm -hmm. their view is that there's no really good or evil what there is is prey and predator Mm -hmm. that illnesses are invisible entities that can come and kill us We as hunters can go and kill animals. Some animals can come and kill us. As long as we're alive as human people like this in this world, our job is to stay alive. And to stay alive, we have to kill plants and animals. But we have to do it with respect because we know that they're members of our family. So this means taking them into consideration. It doesn't mean not killing them. The whole Amazonian eco-cosmology, and of course there are differences between the different cultures, but basically I think this is corresponds, and this is how anthropologists have discussed it, cosmic food web by Kaj Amnem, for example, discusses this. It's an article that you can find online, I'm sure. So it's not really a question of good or evil. It's a question of pragmatically trying to stay alive. You actually do not want to become prey. You know, it's not that we want to celebrate being predators. It's that being predators without getting eaten is the only way of staying alive as far as we're concerned. You know, so that there's just something... Well, it's about smart strategy. You know, it's like, given that we are alive in this world, and this is how this world functions, that there are also invisible forces to take into consideration. And there's a whole sort of cosmic web here that, okay, we've got to understand this. We've got to listen to it. We've got to negotiate with it. And then we've got to act in it with respect. And maybe if we do it that way, we can stay healthy and alive and enjoy the world that we live in. You know, that's their Weltanschauung, their worldview. That's what I can say about
2: it. And during your first consumption of pure tobacco, you had a very powerful and interesting experience, right? You felt like you were transformed into a jaguar. In fact, you write, after a short while there, thinking about nothing much, I ran my tongue under my front teeth, and they seem to be particularly long and sharp. And my face seemed to have cat whiskers growing out of the side that allowed me to sense the environment more sharply. My mouth tasted of blood, and though I was a vegetarian, I enjoyed my taste. My senses were telling me that I was turning into a feline. This wasn't the kind of thing I thought possible, but the impression seemed real. A feline sensation made me feel warm and powerful and wise. I ate some chickens that were clucking around nearby, and like a benevolent jaguar, decided not to pounce on them. So talk to us about this experience, was it in retrospect a hallucination? What do you make out of this? And perhaps most importantly, as an anthropologist, do you find it hard? Did you find it hard initially to sort of begin to talk about this experience with your peers, with your contemporaries? I know it's a packed question, but... <laughs>
1: yeah, I'll unpack it again. You know, as I was saying, I'm not a tobacco person. And I'm basically a kind of a rational guy. So I don't really, you know, believe in uh, Jaguar transformation or, you know, as a, a real thing or, but then there I was. And this is the kind of strange thing about hallucinogens. And this is, yes, tobacco has this kind of, uh, when you take a strong dose of powerful tobacco, clearly, mm-hmm. It gets you thinking and feeling some pretty uh, strange things or, you know, peculiar things. And when I had that experience that I put into words, and those are the words that you just read, it was an exhilarating experience. And I didn't think it was possible. I didn't think it was possible within my own body to have this sort of not only taste of blood in the mouth, not only the whiskers. But also the way of looking at, well, the chickens going by and feeling inside my belly this sort of warmth and power as if I, as a cat, I could just sort of pounce or leap. It may just been an illusion or Mm -hmm. or whatever, but it was actually a very powerful body-based experience. So it's like, Mm -hmm. and when you've had it, it would be like, I don't know, you know, what is a body-based experience? How about sex, for example? You Mm -hmm. know, it it has that, if you've never made love or had a sexual relationship with someone then suddenly, oops, oh, wow, you discover this whole thing that is a a thing onto its own, a very Mm -hmm. powerful thing. It involves your body. It's exhilarating. And at the same time, it was obviously kind of absurd. So I didn't talk about it, didn't write about it. But I did come back to it in subsequent years. And the funny thing about it was like a a memory that I could just convoke like that and that when I wanted to conjure up that strong, intense, predatory uh, gaze doesn't mean attacking people. It means feeling that you could <laughs> attack them and like not attacking them. I mean, you know, jaguars, most of the time, you don't even see them. They're the yeah. hardest animals to, to see. So, and then I thought, oh, this is pretty good. Instead of, you know, because if you talk about it, people think you're nuts, especially the audiences uh, that I was addressing in, in Europe. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I later became a fundraiser talking about how Amazonian people use their resources rationally and the best way to protect the rainforest was to entrust it to their indigenous inhabitants. So I was not talking about the bit where I swallowed the tobacco paste and thought I was a powerful feline, 28 years before actually putting it into writing. And I was happy not to analyze it, not to talk about it, but just to be able to use it, as it were. And I found it pretty useful. For example, uh, before talking to large audiences, You know, like I take when you get up in front of uh, hundreds of people, I think that the, the strongest performance is actually if you can talk as if you were all alone in your room, you know, so that you can abstract out the people who are there and really say what you mean as if you didn't have 500 people looking at you. And the way to get to one way of getting to that place of as if there were not 500 people looking at you is to look at them with the distance of a jaguar, really. You know, in other words, completely focused on my own point of view and on as just getting them as being insignificantly not there. It's a pretty aggressive dance, you know, to just to abstract out the 500 people as if you couldn't care less what they thought about you and then just saying what you think. And so that kind of energy... I found useful. And then only in the last two years, so I don't know, 35 years after the experience, I did this book on tobacco. And by researching it, I understood how deep nicotine goes into the human body. And so in other words, you have, when you take a strong dose of tobacco, you have all kinds of things going on. Like you have dopamine flooding into your brain. You have glutamate, you have serotonin, you have these different, your heart is beating faster. It's kind of like adrenaline, similar to adrenaline rush is the nicotine rush. And so actually, yes, the warm feeling, the kind of slightly more aggressive feeling. The taste of blood is that there is something close between what's in the tobacco and hemoglobin. It's a similar protein. So actually, the tobacco paste actually does have a taste of blood. So this, I don't want to like explain away Jaguar transformation. I don't even want to explain away my own experience, but somebody who takes a molecule seriously, once you Mm -hmm. see how rich in the hormonal response, in other words, when you take a strong dose of tobacco, you don't just experience nicotine, you experience all these other substances that are already in your body that nicotine sets off and impacts dopamine rush, serotonin rush, glutamate rush, so forth. And they have these different, it makes you feel different. So what I said felt like Jaguar transformation. My teeth felt sharper. My whiskers seemed longer. All of those can be traced back to the power of tobacco and its impact on the human body when you're dealing with powerful tobacco. But this takes us to a remark by Rafael Chanchari because he was talking about a mother of tobacco, this powerful entity. And at one point, he mentioned the substance inside the plant that makes us see visions. Mm-hmm. So, so I said, Yeah, so nicotine. So, do you think there's a connection between nicotine and the mother of tobacco? And he said, yes, clearly, we need nicotine and neurons to see, uh, to perceive the mother of tobacco. There is no opposition between the fact that the plant contains psychoactive molecules that have deep impacts on our neurons and our hormones and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, nicotine also impacts on testosterone levels, so that predatory somewhat aggressive feeling and no doubt has a little element of that thrown in as well i mean this is something that should need studying the uh, hallucinatory nature of tobacco is an understudied subject for the moment science has mainly not studied tobacco as a hallucinogen and it's mainly mm-hmm. studied it as the you know the cigarette version of the plant so there's all kinds of research that needs to be done but I think Mm -hmm. there's no contradiction between having a plant that contains psychoactive molecules on the one hand, and then once you've ingested that plant, it certainly felt like turning into a powerful feline, so that may be a metaphor. Mm -hmm. But I mean, essentially, yes, that's what the the paste kind of brought to mind. The aggressiveness, the warmth, the sharpening of the gaze, the taste, you put it all together, it felt like being a big jungle cat. But you know, somebody else might say something else. But oddly enough, with tobacco, this is a widely reported phenomenon by Amazonian shamans. Take a big dose of tobacco and turn into
2: jaguar. It's, you know, business as usual. In talking about, as you write in your book, you know, over the years, ayahuasca has become more and more popular, and more people want to explore and experience ayahuasca for themselves. But there are certain things they need to keep in mind as well, right? Because you write. Maestro Furman and I drank together about 15 times. One night he scolded me for having drunk ayahuasca on my own. Why are you learning sorcery? This is not good because you're going to kill children and parents will suffer. You're going to kill wives and husbands will suffer. You're going to kill men and wives and children are going to suffer. And you will not have many years to live because they will kill you. They will put a bullet in you. Now, this sounds a bit dark, but what do you make out of his words in retrospect? What was he trying to tell you? Well... Yep. These questions are, they're good. I like,
1: (laughs) you know, these are mysterious realms. So some, I found some interesting things have been brought up. One is that in relatively small-knit egalitarian societies like Amazonian indigenous societies, sorcery is a fairly functioning way of dealing with differences between people, power differences, and so on. When you take that way of making sense of things and you apply it in the hierarchized modern world with millions of people who have become individuals, hyper-individualized modern world, it makes less sense. And people say, "Oh, well, what are you talking about? But some anthropologists pointed out that what gets dealt with under the tent of sorcery in the indigenous here, gets dealt with under the tent of psychology. Mm -hmm. That in the world of many, many individuals, each with their own psyche and being very much I, first person, me, 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 personal development. You know, I want to go to the Amazon, take some ayahuasca and do some personal development. Actually, from the indigenous point of view, taking power from this realm and empowering oneself they would call that sorcery. You know, as soon as I mean, shamans are supposed to be conduits. So you take this energy, this knowledge, and you you help somebody with it, then it's okay. But if you actually accumulate it and you're using it for for you to become powerful in the indigenous world, that is fairly suspicious. So to make sense, if we're talking as Westerners or Northerners or modern hyper-individuated people. Um, trying to make sense of what goes on from the Amazonian indigenous perspective with sorcery is already complicated just for that reason. The other thing is, I think it's pretty clear that if you look at the practice of indigenous Amazonian shamanism, it's filled with attack sorcery. I mean, at least 50% of it is about power struggles. It's not pretty. Ayahuasca certainly acts as an amplifier of if you, you are a power-hungry individual, drinking ayahuasca is not going to make it any better. And so I think science and scientists do have their say. When Stan Groff wrote about psychedelics and called them nonspecific amplifiers, to a certain extent, I think that's right, that ayahuasca can amplify what's there. And if what's there is not very pretty, then it's, it might just make it worse. So that's already one thing. I think that people, uh, before rushing into ayahuasca from a Western culture, I think it really is worth kind of doing your homework. Well, reading book uh, like this one where you get sort of basic information, and then in the last instance, and you know, I think this is something that also needs saying: is that I, nobody should ever recommend that anybody take a psychedelic or a hallucinogen because you never know if it's going to precipitate you onto the other side, into psychosis. I mean, that's one of the dangers of psychedelics, is that it can precipitate psychosis for people who are borderline, and you can't know how borderline you are until you take it, and then it's too late. So that it is necessarily a risky proposition that you take with your psyche. So when you're dealing with a powerful hallucinogen like ayahuasca, you want to ask yourself why you're doing this you know what you're looking for um, it really does function like taking the lid off local uh, ordinary consciousness and letting what's in the deep psyche come out there's all kinds of stuff down in the deep psyche you know your your birth your traumas your even maybe your past life experiences whatever it, it'll come out it's actually for people who have trauma it tends to be fairly therapeutic it allows the trauma to come out and so it's a Ayahuasca has shown itself useful for post-traumatic stress disorder and stuff like that. But it's certainly not something to do like, you know, so it's something that's very, it goes deep down inside you. It peels away your defenses. So you become somewhat defenseless during the experience. But that's the whole point is to take down your defenses. It has a strong transformational potential. It can accelerate transformations because of this. You can get to deeper, faster understandings of certain aspects of yourself, but it's also not without tricks or traps. And it depends who you do it with. Uh, It also depends on what you have inside you. It depends what you do with it once it's done, what your goal is. Unfortunately, it doesn't always make people more compassionate more ecologically minded and so on you know I think that that would be something that should be studied is just like people tend to report that it does make them more attentive to nature so maybe that's true but uh, let's get some more evidence if there's enough people drinking ayahuasca now to study how we'd like to have some numbers is it 10 20 or 30 percent of people who get discombobulated by it and who have problems with their ego or with their understanding of themselves. And then you have a whole other large percentage of people who feel that they've learned a lot from it and who feel like they've been enriched by the experience. You know, maybe it's 90 to 10%. I don't know that this is something that needs uh, looking into, but it's not easy for a Western, modern, hyper-individuated person to plunge into the world of ayahuasca and to come back unchanged. And so they'd probably come back changed. And then dealing with those changes in this world here is a, a sport unto its own. You know, so the message is not don't do it, but you know, certainly if you're going to do it, do it as mindfully as possible.
2: So in closing. And along the same theme, what do you feel is the future of uh, you know these planned teachers? If somebody in a city like maybe Vancouver or New York, at the moment they can't just you know drive down to the city and experience it, right? It's usually slightly more hush hush. They need to fly down to South America or more or Costa Rica. So, do you think it becoming more mainstream in the future? Do you think it will be more accepted and so that we have those more number of people that can experience it and we have the data and the numbers? For research. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think that uh, historically, you though know, it changes from one culture to another, but powerful hallucinogens have never been the cup of tea of the majority, or only in very rare societies. You know, what I'd say about ayahuasca is it's not everybody's cup of tea. You know, it's powerful. It tastes harsh. The experience is an ordeal. I mean, you got to want to do it. This is not a recreational drug. You know, it's often terrifying. There are even people who say they like the taste, but there are not too many of them. So I think that actually powerful psychedelics, hallucinogens are probably will be integrated into Western societies, but in a way as kind of marginal tools that can be used for people who who want to do work on their psychology, people who have illnesses and want to think about it, people who are close to death. In other words, you know, that these are deep, powerful, ordeal-like experiences. They're not for every other weekend or any person just walking down the street. You got to sort of want and need to do them. And so that, you know, they become accessible but probably in controlled circumstances and that would be uh, I think an intelligent thing because they are like vehicles they actually do transport you places and so these are powerful vehicles and so it would make sense in our world with laws and cars and driver's license and stuff like that to get you know the state involved so that you know maybe you need to pass a license to be able to take a hallucinogen who knows
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> so much knowledge and I wish I had like you know two hours more time because I'm sure that we could have occupied that time as well because of the wealth of information that you've shared in your book uh, for somebody who's intrigued and, and you've picked their interest and they want to learn more about you as well as get your book how can they find more about you
1: oh well actually you know most of the time it's uh, put out what I have to say in books so you know yeah. I put all the best stuff in the books so like a, a cosmic serpent you can check that out but it was written 26 years ago, but, or otherwise there's a whole bunch of like videos of, of, talks and, you know, stuff like that. I don't really have a website or stuff, but it's just
2: the old school approach. Yeah. Absolutely. And we'll add the link to your book in the show notes action drive. Thanks a lot for listening to this session. If you like the session, then make sure you write as a review on iTunes. Maybe if you have some feedback, comments, observations, or something that you'd like to share, you can email me at aj at my Once again, Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. It was a pleasure to have you and thanks for taking all of us one step closer to a human revolution.
1: AJ, the pleasure was reciprocal. Thank you for your excellent questions and I hope we get to talk again.
0: Thank you for listening to My 7 Chakras at my 7 that is My S-E-V-E-N, Chakras.com.